Suite of the Year, Part 2, from the Flowers of Shakespeare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Flowers of Shakespeare by Esther Singleton Daffodils that come before the swallow dares When daffodils begin to peer With high the dozy over the dale Why then comes in the sweet of the year For the red blood reigns in the winter's pale Is the opening verse That Autolycus like us sings so gaily in the winter's tale The daffodil was carefully nourished up in Elizabethan gardens, as the saying went. Before Shakespeare's time, a great number of daffodils had been introduced into England from various parts of the continent. Gerard describes 24 different species, all and every one of them in great abundance in our London gardens. There are many varieties, both rare and ordinary. Parkinson particularly distinguishes the true daffodils, or Narcissus, from the bastard daffodils, or pseudo-Narcissus, and he gives their differences as follows. It consisteth only in the flower, and chiefly in the middle cup or chalice. For that we do, in a manner only, account these to be pseudo-Narcissus, bastard daffodils, whose middle cup is altogether as long, and sometimes a little longer, than the outer leaves that do encompass it, so that it seemeth rather like a trunk or a long nose than a cup or chalice, such as almost all the narcissi or true daffodils have. Of the bastard tribe, Parkinson gives the great yellow Spanish daffodil, the mountain bastard of diverse kinds, the early straw-coloured, the great white Spanish, the greater Spanish white, the two lesser white Spanish, our common English wild bastard daffodil, the six-cornered, the great double yellow, or John Tradesant's great rose daffodil, Mr. Wilmer's great double daffodil, the great double yellow Spanish, or Parkinson's daffodil, the great double French bastard, the double English bastard, or Gerard's double daffodil, the great white bastard rush daffodil, or John Quiller, the greater yellow junquilla, and many others. Then he adds, The pseudo-Narcissus anginus vulgaris is so common in all England, both in copses, woods, and orchards, that I might well forbear the description thereof. It hath three or four greyish leaves, long and somewhat narrow, along which riseth up the stalk about a span high, or a little higher, bearing at the top out of a skinny husk as all other daffodils have one flower somewhat large having the six leaves that stand like wings of a pale yellow colour and the long trunk in the middle of a fair yellow with the edges or brims a little crumpled or uneven after the flower is passed it beareth a round head seeming free square containing round black seed Shakespeare knew all of these varieties very well, and had many of them in mind when he wrote the beautiful lines for Petita, who exclaims, O Prosperpina, 
with the flowers now that frightened thou lettest fall from Dizzy's wagon, daffodils that come before the swallow dares, and take the winds of March with beauty. The Winter's Tale, Act 4, Scene 3 Much has been written about this description of the daffodils, and it is generally thought that to take the winds of March with beauty means to charm or captivate the wild winds with their loveliness. I do not agree with this idea, and venture to suggest that as the daffodils sway and swing in the boisterous March winds with such infinite grace and beauty, bending this way and that, they take the winds with beauty, just as a graceful dancer is said to take the rhythmic steps of the dance with charming manner. We get a hint for this also in Wordsworth's poem, I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of yellow daffodils, besides the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of the bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance, the waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet would not be but gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. No one can read this poem without feeling that the dancing daffodils take the winds of March with beauty. The very name of the daffodil touches our imagination. It carries us to the Elysian fields, where the ancient Greeks pictured the meads of the blessed as beautifully golden and deliciously fragrant with asphodels. The changes ring through asphodel, aphodel, aphodil, finally reaching daffodil. Then there is one more quaint and familiar name and personification, Daffy Down Dilly that came up to town in a white petticoat and a green gown. The idea of daffodil as a rustic maiden was popular in folklore and poetry. The feeling is so well expressed in Michael Drayton's sprightly ecologue called Daffodil that it forms a natural complement to the happy song of carefree Autolycus just quoted. This pastoral captured popular fancy and it is just as fresh and buoyant as it was when it was written three hundred years ago. Two shepherds, bat and gobo meet. Bat, gobo as thou camest this way by yonder little hill, or as thou through the fields didst stray, sawest thou my daffodil? She's in a flock of Lincoln green, which colour likes the sight. Another hath her beauty seen, but through a veil of white. Gorbo, thou well describest the daffodil. It is not full an hour, since by the spring near yonder hill I saw that lovely flower. Bat, yet my fair flower thou didst not meet, no news of her didst bring. And yet my daffodil's more sweet than that by yonder spring. Gorbo, I saw a shepherd that doth keep in yonder field of lilies, 
was making, as he fed his sheep, a reef of daffodillies, that, yet, Gorbo, thou deludest me still, my flower thou didst not see, for no, my pretty daffodil, is one of none but me, the show itself but near her feet, no lily is so bold, except a shader from the heat, or keep her from the cold, Gorbo, through yonder vale as I did pass, descending from the hill, I met a smirking bonny lass, they call her Daffodil, whose presence as long she went, the pretty flowers did greet, as though their heads they downward bent with homage to her feet, and all the shepherds that were nigh from top of every hill, unto the valleys loud did cry, There goes sweet Daffodil, that, Ay, gentle shepherd, now with joy, thou see my flocks doth fill, there she alone, kind shepherd boy, lets us to daffodil. The flower was called jonquil, saffron lily, lent lily, and narcissus. It was the large yellow narcissus known as the rose of Sharon, so common in Palestine, of which Mohammed said, He that hath two cakes of bread, let him sell one of them for a flower of the narcissus. For bread is the food of the body, but narcissus is the food of the soul. Narcissus, the most beautiful youth of Beota, was told that he would live happily till he saw his own face. Loved by the nymphs, and particularly Echo, he rejected their advances, for he was immune to love and admiration. One day, however, he beheld himself in the stream, and became so fascinated with his reflection, that he pined to death, gazing at his own image. For him the nades and dryads mourn, whom the sad echo answers in her turn. And now the sister nymphs prepare his urn, when looking for his corpse they only found, a rising stalk with yellow blossoms crowned. In the centre of the cup are to be found the tears of Narcissus. Because the flowers consecrated to Ceres and to the underworld and to the Elysian fields, the daffodil was one of the flowers the Proserpine was gathering when dusky disc carried her off. And the myth also hints that the earth purposely brought the Ashfodal forth from the underworld to entice the unsuspecting daughter of Ceres. Sophocles associates the daffodil with the garlands of great goddesses, and ever, day by day, the Narcissus with its beauteous clusters. The ancient coronet of the mighty goddesses bursts into bloom by heaven's dew. The delightful Dr. Forbes Watson writes of the daffodil like a painter with accurate observation and bright palette. In the daffodil, the leaves and stems are of a full, glaucous green, a colour not only cool and refreshing in itself, but strongly suggestive of water, the most apparent source of freshness and constituting a most delicious groundwork for the bright, lively yellow of the blossoms. Now what sort of spave would be likely to contribute best to this remarkable effect of the flower? Should the colours be unusually striking, or the size increased, or what? Strange to say, in both daffodil and pheasant's eye, poet's narcissus, we find the spave dry and withered, shriveled up like a bit of thin brown paper, and clinging round the base of the flowers. We cannot overlook it, and most assuredly we were never meant to do so. 
nothing could have been more beautifully ordered than this contrast, there being just sufficient to make us appreciate more fully that abounding freshness of life. It is a plant which affords a most beautiful contrast, a cool, watery sheet of leaves with bright, warm flowers, yellow and orange, dancing over the leaves like meteors over a marsh. The leaves look full of watery sap, which is the lifeblood of plants and prime source of all their freshness, just as the tissues of a healthy child look plump and rosy from the warm blood circulating within. In its general expression, the poet's Narcissus seems a type of maiden purity and beauty, yet warmed by a love-breathing fragrance, and yet what innocence in the large soft eye which few can rival among the whole tribe of flowers. The narrow yet vivid fringe of red so clearly seen amidst the whiteness suggests again the idea of purity and gushing passion, purity of a heart which can kindle into fire. End of Daffodils That Come Before the Swallow Dares <laughs>